This is Adam Lippy, writer, editor, publisher of RegrettableSincerity.com, and this is my second appearance on Morning Feed with Ed Feldman. And in this second appearance, I was promoting the medium rare cinema screening of the Richard Dreyfus vehicle, The Big Fix. And we discuss, you know, besides The Big Fix, uh, its relation to Devil in a Blue Dress. I talk about films that were coming out at that point, which was June of 2011, so Super 8, Tree of Life, Submarine, there's a discussion of the Human Centipede, and I push the Tripod Quest documentary that I realize is now coming out on DVD, so don't go see it in the theater. Go rent the DVD or Netflix or whatever is the best for you. Uh, go see that, and uh, then I make fun of Ed Feldman's back hair. So uh, please enjoy the next 90 minutes. Fugs, Thule Kupferberg, beat poet turned uh, rock musician, avant-garde musician. He just died recently. Oliver Shulam for Thule Kupferberg. Imagine a, uh, an avant-garde version of the Mothers of Invention. You got the Fugs. One time a long time ago, out in the Central Park, the Mothers and the Fugs had a gross-out contest in Central Park. I think the Mothers, in the final round, what the Mothers of Invention did was stuff live chickens down their pants, unzip their flies, pull the chicken's head out, and cut them off with a razor. I might be remembering this wrong, and but the fugs in the final round beat them by peeing on each other, as I recall, although maybe it was just a dream. This is Morning Feed. This is <laughs> Cheat Town Radio. This is Ed Feldman. And this, or might I say that, over there, say over there, is Adam Lippy the purveyor of fine cinema to all of you at medium rare cinema every Thursday night at seven at the video library on 7141 Germantown Avenue. He's got a new flyer, silly movies for smart people, but Adam, I, I don't think you should limit yourself. Ignoramuses are welcome. Are they not? Sure. But usually they won't be able to find this store. <laughs> sure. Well, it says we don't expect them to be able to walk down the stairs and not trip. Well, wait a minute. What easier thing for people to find than a video store, which, as we all know, really don't exist any. They don't exist anymore. They are the anachronism, the dead man walking of. Well, I'm uh, assuming of, stupid people would probably get run over before they got to the store. Perhaps or perhaps they'll say, hey, let's let's rent a tape. <laughs> and when they get there, they say, where are the tapes? Where are things for rent? Hey, wait a minute. There's a movie playing. And what movie is playing tonight, Adam? The Big Fix. Ah, oh, The Big Fix. And to those of you out, out there who are like me of a certain age and of a certain bereftness of foreskin, we, uh, we, we present for you one of the cutest Jews that ever, inexplicably, in that period where short, ugly guys got to be romantic leads, you know, after Hollywood collapsed, before Spielberg straightened everybody up again and got handsome guys back in the lead, handsome guys who really couldn't act all that well and then got craggy and became an elder statesman and became a kind of an archetype, but they still can't act. We had the leads pervade by ugly guys like 
hackmen or short guys like Pacino or ugly short guys like Richard Dreyfus. Right, Adam? Uh, agreed. Yes. <laughs> and this was dur- this is right after uh, I guess Dreyfus' last film with Spielberg, which is right after Close Encounters. He's in the movie. There's mm-hmm. a Star Wars reference, even though it only came out a year after Star Wars. And Star Wars and, and Close Encounters were sort of competing with each other. So I guess, I don't know that the joke that's made in The Big Fix, and Dreyfus produced The Big Fix, mm-hmm. whether or not that's sort of a dig at Lucas and Spielberg and all that other stuff. Well, did you think Spielberg and Lucas had some parting words after Close Encounters? Or did you think that perhaps there was some negotiations that went awry or didn't get wrong uh, simply put at this point did Dreyfus know that Spielberg was never going to use him again uh, and was going to go to tall Christians instead as his alter egos he, he might in the movie he might have known I mean you have to there's probably two things that connect them after Close Encounters the big fix was produced by Universal and Universal distributed all of Spielberg's early films up to and through 1941, and then from 81 on, he would go between Paramount and Universal, depending on the film. And the fallout from Close Encounters with Dreyfus, not that it wasn't successful or, or, or well-received, it's that he used to go on talk shows and bash the movie before it was finished. Dreyfus did, yeah. Well, yeah. he did that famously with Jaws. And he did it with Close Encounters as well. He was wrong both times. Yes, he was. The last two good Spielberg movies, in my humble opinion, the last... The last two that coincidentally starred a short, ugly Jew. Well, anyway. <laughs> and you know what? It's interesting. You know, uh, the, the famous scene in, in Citizen Kane with uh, William Allen as the reporter interviewing Everett Sloan uh, as the chairman of the board, a white dress she wore. There was actually a discussion at the RKO, RKO executive level whether the United States could accept a scene with two Jews in it as it as if anybody knew who the hell William Allen was let alone the condition of his foreskin <laughs> well also except uh, a scene although all the scenes were written by Jews directed by Jews that's by, different that's different yes, the, that's different the Hank Kingsley that's different thing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um uh, right British or, or think Yiddish uh, speak British Spielberg never used Dreyfus again after Close Encounters. Right. He never used him again, and I don't think he ever used a, a Jew in the lead. I mean, he got Ben Kingsley to play one for crying out loud. Eric Bana to play a Jew. Yeah, how about that? See, there you go, you rotten little bastard. And that's why I'm so happy, and I think karma, which is uh, actually a concept of, uh, of a different uh, fantasy uh, universal view, has come back and to bite the little bastard from USC or wherever the hell he went for a month. And he's never made a good movie since a Close Encounters. I know you may differ. Temple of Doom. What? <laughs> we talked about that. <laughs> they wanted to just take it apart like the mousetrap game. And ju- I, I'm, Do you think the Temple of Doom, like Citizen Kane, like... Charles Foster Kane's uh, possessions is like all disassembled in some warehouse. And now that Brian Roberts and universe, they're going to, they're going to reassemble it and put it down in Orlando. They could do that. It's not too late. Well, I think they could remake temple of doom and the animatronic people anyway. So it wouldn't, 
What do you think that little Asian kid is doing now? Well, I mean, he's in the Goonies, but then he sort of disappears, kind of like Long Duck Dong, you know, faded. In Don't the back- talk dirty. Faded okay. in the background from 16 Candles and then became a character actor that you'd occasionally see, but not very often. Yeah, well, I think we can go to Where Are They Now under TMZ and... The Big Fix is a really, really good movie. And like another one of my more recent favorite movies, it's part of a, it's the only movie made from a series of, of detective stories about a particular detective. One of those sub-genre uh, or genre detective stories. The most recent one, of course, I really enjoyed is Devil in a Blue Dress based on the Easy Rollin'. Well, uh, yeah, Devil in Blue Dress is very good. But I love that movie. The yeah. Big Fix oddly more resembles The Big Lebowski than almost anything else. Well, in because the, he smokes pot. Well, no, not no. just the smoking the pot, but the, the plot turns itself over and is so convoluted and so complicated that the main character sits there unable to try to figure out, and there are whole scenes where he just sits there batting back with, between his kids trying to figure out. You know, here's this plot point. Here's this plot point. And it's very similar in it, not just the pot, but the, just the confusion and mm-hmm. being in over his head and uh, the facial hair. Uh, well, <laughs> The Big Fix is a, mo- is a detective story about a detective, a private eye, named Moses Wine. And Moses Wine's backstory genre hook as we see in a lot of detective series, an old lady detective or a Siamese twin detective or a gay detective or a black detective. You know what? No one has done a gay Nick and Nora thin man. Well, uh, the closest is uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, but... Uh, well, that was... And I love that movie. That Val Kilmer showed me something. He was hilarious. Val Kilmer, the number one dower. I am an actor and therefore, you know, avert thine eyes when looking upon me. He was hilarious. Kilmer is a great actor who has been stuck in a lot of stuff for the last five or six years because he's been thinking of running for Senate in New Mexico. So he's been ringing. No, you're kidding. No, that's true. For real? Yeah. And, he, and well, he's not going to do it. He, just, he changed his mind, but he was bringing movies to be shot in New Mexico to bring money into the economy. So he was doing a lot of direct-to-video movies with Avi Lerner um, and Ely Samaha before Avi Lerner took over for Ely Samaha. So all those direct-to-video schlock with Michael Madsen or Cuba Gooding or any of that stuff, you're like, what yeah, happened to these Cuba actors? Yeah, Cuba Gooding, man. That's, that's what happened is that they, now they trade off shooting in New Orleans, New Mexico, Detroit, and it's all the same like script basically rewritten on the day. Yeah. The last time any of us saw him, he was jumping up and down on the Academy Awards stage and then just, you know, the next time I saw him, he was actually across the street from my house shooting a scene with uh, Helen Mirren. Oh, uh, from Shadowboxer. Whoa. That is a terrible movie. You know what? They say they don't make smell-o-vision movies anymore. But believe me, there, there's, there's an odor coming off the screen. And one would think that any movie that had Helen Mirren naked, you know, would be good. No, it doesn't work out. And all you can well, really Caligula's do... Well, is not good either. Yeah, but she's really good looking. <laughs> na- there's a lot of naked people in yeah. that. I just watch it with the sound off. Um, and I try and pick out, you know, uh, uh, what the, the shadow across the scene that is probably Bob Guccione. <laughs> Standing in front of a light, trying to like get closer and closer. The key to understanding how bad Shadow Shadowboxer is is uh, it's Lee Daniels' first directing, and he directed Precious, and he's been a producer for a long time. And if you listen to the director's commentary, he spends so much time worrying about the zebra in Stephen Dorff's front yard 
that he seems to forget about the movie and there's all this stuff about attaining the zebra and you're like, yeah. this is why the movie doesn't work because you're more worried about the zebra than the fact that you have these mismatched couples and you're trying to have Macy Gray act and have us believe it. But she can sing, you know, uh, I think she acted pretty good in Spider-Man though. <laughs> she like moved around the stage like she had done it before. Mm. And she really kind of looked up and, and, and I felt as if she actually saw those balloons. See, so that's acting to me. Um, we have to get back to into Moses Wine. All I can say is if you're from Philadelphia, watch Shadow Boxer just so you can say, see that train station? Ed Feldman used to live across the street from that train station. Um, yeah, Cuba Gooding Jr., like, God, what's her name? Uh, from My Cousin Vinny. I love her. Marissa Tomei. Oh, I mean, aren't they the poster children for, you know, the curse? of the best supporting actor actress thing? Well, yes in a sense. I mean She's done good work, but nobody right. sees it. I mean Well, here's the thing is that she got a lot of acclaim for Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. And excellent. And of course, excellent but, but both clothed and unclothed she doesn't the have, She doesn't really have a role in Before her role is to be naked every 10 minutes. You know what? And that's all right with me, Adam, you know, mm -hmm. I have to say that she's wonderful and although she's not my particular body type, I adore her. Well, that was She's a, like a really cool person that I'd like to hang out with and also have sex with. That that movie's like an ode to her personal trainer, really. Just that she's in incredible shape and being like 41, 42 and the wrestler is All right, I never enjoyed the film, but it's Listen, you can train all you want, but when you're that age and your breasts look like that and take it from me, there is no knifing of those. There is there is no surgery involved there. That has something to do with, I don't know, something else. Good genes, good luck, good something. God bless her. I will say I will not entertain a counter argument on this on this matter. If it's oh, I'm not going to counter argument okay. that she looks good. Good for her. Good for her. Back to Moses Wine. Moses Wine was a series of detective novels, and the backstory of Moses Wine was he used to be a hippie, he likes to smoke pot, and of course he's Jewish, and now he's a private eye. And this was, frankly, the only movie made on uh, those series of detective novels. Did it do any money when it was out in 78? No, it didn't. Why not? It is. I was going to movies in 78. It's my demographic. Yeah, but it is. Short, it, hairy it doesn't beard. fall into a very. It's a, it's a it's a sort of low comedy sort mm -hmm. of satire on ex hippies turning to Republican types. Sort. I mean, just it's and a, Abby Hoffman going yes, underground. Exactly. And there's but there's a whole like there's such a turn in the middle of the film mm -hmm. that I don't know. It might not play as satisfying to an audience who just wanted a night out. I mean, it doesn't. It's not as hard edged as a lot of seventies films of you, that era, and it's neither part of the. Since it's post Star Wars, it's it's not really part of the, you know, the ripping off science fiction western type thing. Nor is it a hard edged and scarecrows. It type wasn't. Thing. It was seventy eight. It was after the break. Had it come out in seventy four, maybe. Yes. Before uh, the space cowboy shit, uh, before the young Turks became old pigs. Well, I think it might have helped if it were actually a little harder in terms of reaching a larger audience because mm -hmm. it's a PG film. Although the PG is. In in the seventies, PG the, was different back yes, then. Yes, it really was. Titty with PG. Yeah, and he then. smokes pot throughout the movie, so it, it is very different in that sense. But it, it it's very restrained, and you can kind of tell that they were hedging their bets in terms of well, let's not have him say this or this or this. So, yeah, yeah. some some of it gets in the way, but I, I didn't. I, it However, didn't bother me. You couldn't have told the story before the space cowboy shit revolution, because 
Abby Hoffman was not underground yet. And which brings me to the question. Did the screenwriters, who I can't read on your copy because I don't have my old man. Roger Simon, who wrote the novel, wrote the screenplay. Ah, so that was, it was not based on one of his novels. No, it is based on one of his novels, but he also wrote the screenplay. But uh, He, He wrote it based on his own book. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Howard Epis plot was in his book, even though it was basically about Abby Hoffman going underground? I have to admit that I haven't read the book, but I, okay. assu- I assume that it must have been because he didn't sue himself or take his name off his own movie. Well, see, that's the thing. I felt when watching that movie that they wrote the Abby Hoffman, the unabashed, I mean, come on, Helen Keller was asked who should play Abby Hoffman, and she said F. Murray Abraham, of course although he is quite a bit shorter. I always assumed that that plot was put in at that particular time because Abby Hoffman, being underground, could not sue them. <laughs> he would have had to appear in court, and he would have gone to, go to, he would have gone to jail on the coke wrap. Sure, but, I mean, the whole thing, that, is, that could have... Yes, it's obviously based on Abby Hoffman, but that part mm-hmm. could have been about anyone in the sense that blaming, well, I don't want to get into too much giving away the story, but blaming counterculture types for Mm -hmm. mass murder and stuff like that. Okay, well, anyway, if you want to see this movie, and it is a really cool movie, and it's being given in Mount Airy, and if anybody who's listening to me in Mount Airy, uh, you know who you are, and I know who you are, too. You will enjoy this movie, because although you may deny it, you're a lot like me. Um, and so go see this movie. It's called The Big Fix. It's with Richard Dreyfus at, at his, and I say this with all due heterosexuality, as his, at his most cutest and without question his most desirable. I mean, next to the goodbye girl, which is loathsome to me. Or per- Duddy Kravitz. What? Well, Duddy Kravitz, you know, he plays a prick. Yes. I mean, I mean, the, and that's, again, based on the Mordecai Rickler mm-hmm. story, which is a gr- also a great book. Not a great book. A good book. Duddy Kravitz was after Graffiti, yes? Or yeah, I think yes. he might have made it before. It, he might have made it and then it came after. Because it's not... It wouldn't have pleased the market or so the studio felt. So they did release it afterwards, yeah. Right, right. He, he played a prick. Mm-hmm. It was about a Canadian Jew. And, of course, the Jews who run, ran Hollywood saying, nobody wants to go and see a movie about a Canadian Jew. <laughs> I'll be late for Shabbos, honey. That's the way they talk. So uh, graffiti like pushed him over the top, but then of course he got Jaws, and that was that. Until of course he went somehow off the rails by bashing his movie, and now what does he do? Teach college, have a website? He'll appear on a yeah TV show for four episode arcs every so often. Yeah, he was on Weeds. He was on a couple other things. Really? See, I don't get Showtime, man. I want to watch Weeds. Well, you can. I mean, look, if you want to watch Weeds, because that just make your nudge nudge joke and go, ha ha. You know, people in the suburbs smoke weed too. Which is, you know, obviously a big surprise to no one. See, now she's 45 and I'm in love with her, too. No, that's fair. But, I, you know, I can't really back the the show as anything other than a, aren't we, uh, you know, sneaky and uh, I've watched it and I've laughed, you know? You're you're allowed. Okay. All right. Never mind. That's TV and your movies. No, no. I like, you know, TV is caught up with movies in a lot of ways. I just... Find well, they have more money than movies now. <laughs> <laughs> I just find the weeds isn't trying very hard. The, well, you know what? I'm 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 uh, unqualified to talk about it season by season, but I've watched the first two seasons. And no, that's more than I have. I just found the whole thing like very much self satisfied, and you compare it to like another drug story like Breaking Bad, which is so much more clever mm-hmm. and so 
you know, going in odd directions that that you could, you just compare the two in terms of how they deal with a suburban drug dealer. And 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 one is, you know, just a sitcom with cursing and the other right. one really attempts to to tell a story and have interesting characters and have shades of gray and, you know, Well, like Breaking that. Bad is meth. That's different. Take it from someone who may or may may or may not have dealt weed in the long distance beyond the statute of limitation past. There's only a limited amount of situations that can happen to you. Trust me, because they happened over and over and over again. And after you you say, you know what, I'm never going to deal with those guys again. Well, after you said that the 16th time, I mean, you realize it, it's just the same shit over and over. But never, never mind that. Uh, my lawyer's online, too. Uh, Adam, so let us uh, compare the big fix to this more recent movie by uh, Roger Mosley, or based on the, the Easy Rollins books. Double Noble Dress, yes. Excellent, excellent movie. Uh, one of uh, that and Inside Man. Don Cheadle's breakout role was Devil in Blue Dress. He's really great in it. Oh, as Mouse, mm-hmm. just a, a diamond-like performance. Just uh, takes the movie, turns it around. But frankly, that and Inside Man are the only uh, Denzel movies of the last. I guess it's got to be now fifteen years that I can watch more than once and say. God bless him. He's got a castle and an island. You know, let him take the money. I would suggest you watch Ricochet, which is a fantastically embarrassing movie. One he made in '91 with Lithgow, who was in who was in the big. Oh yeah, I saw that. What a piece of stuff! Oh, it's it's awful, but it's it's. What about the one with Spacey? Or Uh, is that the other one? What what are you thinking? Negotiator Uh, with. No, that's that's, that's Sam Jackson. Jackson. Yeah. Oh, don't be racist. Okay. No, that's why I was like, <laughs> yeah, I know. confused. No, no. All right, I'm confusing Spacey before he hit was this like uh, uh, was this like a doppelganger uh, three dimensional guy? Who... Oh no, you're thinking of Russell Crowe. Oh, virtuosity. Same. That's another sort of fantastic terrible. That's what Denzel, right? Yes. See, he's so catching a paycheck with that movie. I, 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 uh, I confused Spacey with Crow. See, there you go. So I'm being racist too. <laughs> Except Rose, uh, Roe just played gay people before he came to America, and Spacey is only playing straight guys now. Hey, wait a minute. Let me ask you this: Is the reason? And I see this as an arc, and I I love arcs because it's movie talk. Is Spacey running? Um, the National Theatre of England because he couldn't figure out how to stay a first-ranked star in American cinema and never kiss a girl anymore because he felt... No, he did. Uh, didn't he do it in the Bobby Darren movie? Yeah, but he... And he directed that, that. That was his movie, and I, th- I think because his money was on the line... I, I think that's different. I think it, with the absolutely astronomical egos of people in that business notice i didn't say this business that business i think he felt that was you know that was proper but he wouldn't kiss a girl if another person told him to well that would make him not a very good actor if we're going to pry into his private life but you know because obviously a lot of people aren't going to come out for fear of alienating the other or I guess they think of the Midwest as the other, although most of the Midwest probably doesn't care. Oh, right, they don't. Oh, it's oh, it's the last stupid cardboard taboo. But look, Adam, how how many how many of these people smoke pot and they won't admit it on the air? You know, they all, won't come. All of them. Yeah, all of them except. 
Galifianakis and uh, I mean, which is his fucking persona. But wait, wait till he goes to the gym. Wait till he shaves off the beard. Wait till he slims down and trims up and start. He'll stop pulling out herbal cigarettes on Bill Maher. What a dope. Uh, and, and pretending to. I mean, he didn't even really smoke pot on that show. Well, that's because it wouldn't have been a good idea. Why not? Because if he has a prescription, he's allowed. Uh, it's California, you know. He's he's allowed, but isn't it one of those things where you're allowed to buy it, but you're not allowed to have it? It's some bizarre like. Oh, because Jack Kalifanakis can't pay the uh, the the misdemeanor fine for lighting up in public. Oh, I'm sure he could, but I'm also sure his lawyer said something like, "No, you can't really." And did he ever think of, well, you know, we all smoke pot and the only way to demystify it, the only way to finally drive the nail into the most antiquated law in American society is for the people who uh, Americans love and respect and will do anything if they do it too and forgive them anything is for us to say, I smoke pot. Hey, so do I. And me too. But even Mar, and who's who's too. who's a pot smoker, just turned it into fodder for his own smug monologue. So, yeah, I mean, like you call that a monologue? Uh, Aren't monologues supposed to have laugh lines? Uh, they have attempts. I mean, Leno <laughs> has a monologue, but I wouldn't call it funny. Who's this Leno I hear of? I have no idea. <laughs> See, when you take your your head out of the oil drum that somebody's banging on the side of with a Louisville Slugger, the noise stops. All you have to do is remove your head. And I don't watch that anymore, you know, and I don't even laugh at Letterman anymore. I went to Kimmel. Gotta go. Gotta go to Kimmel. He tells he tells real jokes in a monologue setting, but that's television. So the Moses Wine uh, and the Easy Rollins stories, see, we double back. The uh, Easy Rollins Devil in the Blue Dress, based on a series of a black detective in, in, in noir L.A. after the Second World War, is a most life-affirming movie, you know, for all the kind of post-X uh, 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 life-affirming or, or, or uh, African-American-affirming movies that Denzel has tried to do. One of the greatest political images, and an image is not a statement. A statement is, sit down and let me tell you something. An image is how... Is how filmmakers make us feel rather than telling us how to feel. One of the great life-affirming pro-African-American images in recent movie history is the end, is the last scene of Devil in a Blue Dress with, after he has solved the crime, after he has made some money, after, without saying it, he realizes I'm now going to be a detective. He walks down the middle-class African-American street and sees the African-American children playing and the black families thriving. And without any voiceover about the situation, you see a sense of pride, a sense of personal accomplishment, and a sense of hope. It's a great image. It's a life-affirming image. It is a it is a culture-affirming image, and it doesn't preach. You know that scene. I do. I remember. I saw that in the theater, mm-hmm. and I remember a lot of things about the movie. What was most distressing about the movie? I saw it um, in a neighborhood similar to Germantown in New York in 1995, and it, I saw an opening night. And on the same opening night that Devil in a Blue Dress maybe had a quarter-filled theater, upstairs was Halloween Six in a sold-out 
theater, and it's not even a very good Halloween. Did you go up there? Uh, eventually. I eventually saw Halloween. Did whatever. anybody run for the exits? No. I love uh, when that shit happens. No, it didn't. I mean, well, look, it's not. <laughs> it, that. That's a, one with notorious producer interference where there's a, a producer's cut that everyone has seen but not heard of because mm-hmm. it's a bootleg that travels around the Internet. And that, you know, that was like not just a cash in, but they, you know, they had to find a way to have Donald Pleasant stay around and suggest another thing, even though he died while they were making it. Um, and that man's done Shakespeare, you know, I know but that'll be, you know, like Alec Guinness. That's his most, you know, yeah, it <laughs> uh, doesn't matter what he does. Uh, but but that was what was so sad is that Devil in a Blue, Blue Dress was a pro black film. Mm hmm. Uh, and smart and, you know, uh, you know, and has iconic images as you, as you mentioned and, uh, Halloween six isn't even trying as a slasher movie. And, uh, one was filled with, uh, people who might live in this neighborhood and, uh, it was me and about 10 other white people in devil in blue dress. And all the white people in devil in the blue dress were bad. <laughs> That's right. And then, well, it didn't quite fall into that. You know, easy, easy trap of like, let's just pit the races against each other. Well, no, most most white people are bad, so it's completely accurate. <laughs> but it, it didn't it didn't fall into the 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 shaft trap. Of, right. Okay. Of of like yeah, and it came out around the same time as Shaft. No, it didn't. It came out in nineteen ninety. Are you talking about the remake of Shaft? Yeah, the remake. Remake the re- is two thousand. Okay. All right. Um. Anyway, go see Devil in a Blue Dress, but more importantly, go see the Big Fix tonight. Tonight at the video library, you don't need reservations. You just need to show up at 7141 Germantown Avenue in the heart of beautiful and uh, multicultural Mount Airy, where Adam Lippy will be speaking and showing a short subject before. Yes. What's, what's on the program tonight? Well, the short subject, I've been thinking about showing a Ken Russell piece that I put together myself, but it is totally irrelevant to the movie. But then, as Ed and I discussed beforehand, anything that Ken Russell has made is totally irrelevant to anything. So, Not um, to the discussion of insanity in filmmaking. Yes. <laughs> I was thinking of showing a really great short film called Trunk, which features... Well, yeah, it's it, it's going to be like, that kid is in something that one of the kids from uh, Home Improvement grown up, and it's about, like two frat types who think they well one is telling the other one that there's a body in the trunk and they drive out to the middle of nowhere and in order to get into the frat one of them has to help him dig up the body and dig, dig a hole and put the body in there and then it escalates from that point and it's very very funny and very smart and very dark and how long is it it's a short that's set? that's 20 minutes and when was it made uh i think it was made uh three years three four years ago Okay. Um, it, it isn't necessarily. It's one of those things where I'd love to show more people the Ken Russell thing I put together, but it couldn't be less relevant to the to the big fix that I figure that I you know I should show something that's very entertaining and very smart in a similar way that big fix is. Maybe you should do a whole Ken Russell night one night with a feature and the short and call it Insanity on Celluloid. Yeah, but how many people would sit there for <laughs> seventeen movies about phalluses and, and nuns? Well, I think it's much more basic. It's the fact that Ken Russell is an insane Englishman, and uh, again, in that period between the collapse of the with between Harry Cohn's death and Steven Spielberg's mogulness, um, it was free time for all. See, 
that was a, t- a lot of people talk about indie films today, but if there's one thing we know about indie films, they cost $11,000 to make. I mean, right. or they give them $3 million, all right? What's, what's the kind of uh, indices today? You can, make a mil- uh, you can make a movie for $40 million and up, or you can make a million for $4 million and down. There's nothing in between. Right, because if you do it in between, the movie's not going to get distributed. There's no reason for the studio to make it right. because it's just cheaper for them to bury it than to spend $50 million on prints and advertising. Right, and, but back then... You could get that thirty million and do a crazy ass movie yeah. because they hadn't locked down this equation that, of course, accountants had set in stone on and put on their walls. So people again who are short and ugly got to kiss the girl, and sometimes the girls weren't that attractive either. Shout out to Glenda Jackson. Oh yeah, um, a great actress, but. Oh, gentle, shall I die? Susan Tyrell. Yes. Oh, you know what? Susan Tyrell had something. Those big eyes. Fat City. Great fucking movie, man. Yes, it is. I could watch that movie today. Adam, I know you're an analytical guy, as am I, or else how could I talk for this long about all these things? But sometimes I just, when I get, it's it's like a Pollock painting. I don't want to analyze it. I just want to experience it. And sometimes I'm so close to something like film that rather than saying, what's my favorite film of last year? What are my top 10 this or that or the other? I just say, what film could I watch today again? And that's, you know, it's like a pass fail. It's not an A, B, C or D with me. It's like, and we, we mentioned, I mentioned it last time. I said, big sleep. Oh, once a month. Easily, easily. Do you ever get that, like, you know, just dump the analyses and just say, love, don't, I could, because that's my grade. That's my easy, I don't want to think about it grade. Do I like this movie? Do I love this movie? Is one of my favorite movies. Can I watch it every month? It's very difficult when your brain is in that mode all mm-hmm. the time anyway, like mine is. Yeah. Uh, and I also don't tend to watch movies more than once very frequently because there's so many that I get sent or have to go see. There are, there are a few that I grew up with or saw when I was a little younger that are sort of beyond criticism because I know they're terrible and I don't care. One being Lethal Weapon 2. Uh, is that the Joe Pesci? No, that's that, the uh, that Afrikaner ch- one. Yes, it is, but Joe Pesci's in that one too. Mm. Um, and the other being The Long Kiss Goodnight, which I'm totally aware is a dreadful movie, but I love it. I can watch that, you know? Uh, even... What's that guy's name? Remy Martin? Rennie Harlan. Rennie Harlan. <laughs> I'm thinking of drinking at 20 to 10 in the morning. Uh, y- you know, y- you throw shit at a wall and eventually you get a Picasso. You know, it's the monkeys and the typewriter, isn't it? Well, I can't remember if I said this last time I was on here that everyone has their favorite Rennie Harlan. They all like one, whether it be Die Hard 2 or Nightmare on Elm Street 4, or Cliffhanger, or Deep Blue Sea, or Driven, or something. Hated we them all, have... all or, yes, except exactly. for the ones I didn't see. Right, but there would be one. Hate. Whether yeah. it be prison or whatever, born American or uh, mine hunters or whatever, there's always one that will appeal to you. Whether it be Ford Fairlane or any number of other movies, he that's a Rennie Harlan too. That's a Rennie Harlan, yes. Get the hell out. That was made. <laughs> he got. It was weird because it, I think it ended up coming out after Die Hard Two, but he got Die Hard Two because of. You want to get the call? Sure. Uh, hey, you're on the air with Adam Lippy and Ed Feldman on Morning Feed. Who are you? Um, I'm Amanda. Hey, you know, this is hey. the fruit of my loins right here. <laughs> Hi. Hi, honey. 
Um, look at Dave downloaded the human centipede last night after yeah. I expressly told him not to. <laughs> That's our f- lovely fiance, David. And why did you tell him not to, lovely one? I don't want to see that movie. Why not? <laughs> the stupidest premise I've ever heard. That wouldn't work. Doesn't have the already the ready-made imprimatur of Trey and Matt ripping it off. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't seen that either. But how are they going to get four movies out of this premise? Well, he already made a second one that was already banned in England. Um, I'm going to step back and you two discuss this movie. Give us a capsule, one of you. Of which one? I feel like when cinema, when movies are so obviously, it's like that forced shock value. It's not witty. I'm not amused by that. Well, in in the sense that it's... You're getting old, Amanda. I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say that. When you start to recognize that some some movies are not trying to entertain you and they're just trying to shock you, it's not. Look, there are vomit porn movies that I know distributors put out every so often. So you can push the boundaries. It's just generally not entertaining once you realize that the only thing going on is pushing the boundaries. They're not even artfully doing it. They're not even interested in entertaining you. And I don't. Yeah, I thought the Human Centipede was fairly dull actually. And I could see the imagery that was created in the director's head and why he wanted to do the movie, but it's more of an art piece that is padded with another hour and a half of really terrible German slasher type, you know, ugly American yeah. stuff. I uh, get it, I guess. Did no, no, you I'm watch defe- it, I'm man? Not defending Have it you seen this Human Centipede movie? Yeah, no, I saw it a while ago. Like, it kind of flipped through the, you know, I was like looking at it on the computer and kind of... And what is a human through. centipede? Oh, you don't know the premise of this movie? Uh, only from the the one minute of South Park that I watched because it jumped the shark when, frankly, five years ago when Cartman got hit back. See, oh, I, you, didn't I like, you didn't like the Cthulhu episode? You know, I just stopped. I stopped watching. I'm saving up to go see the Book of Mormon. And the Cthulhu when it comes around in summer stock, I'll probably be able to afford it. <laughs> the Cthulhu three-parter was good, and you'll, you, you find it funny because um, Cartman starts hanging out with Cthulhu, and it's like a big Totoro reference. I love Totoro. He's, he's I'm kind of like Totoro. Like, he's like, what's your name, Cthulhu? It's so cute. So the human centipede is about something, about mm-hmm. people. Mad scientist who wants to use and... And, and grafts the, people together back to front. No, literally performs surgery and, yeah. And makes a human centipede. Yes. Ass to mouth, I guess you would have to say. Oh, okay. Ass to, oh, so they're reversed. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah. Ass to mouth. Right, right. I, right. I know that. Uh, what do you so think basically of... Basically to make one long intestinal tract. But... Honestly, I've got one of those people. What? How does he expect these people to live? They're obviously not gaining any nutrition. Well, it's not attempted realism at all. I think the <laughs> point of having I the, think a man is goofing on us now. The, the cartoon really uh, German doctor is is yeah. is to lower expectations about any sort of quality that we're about to get. Although, you know, if the movie makes that much money that it that it finances IFC to make to distribute hundreds more movies, I think that's okay as a. You know, Aren't they on board with the new uh, Steven uh, uh, Spielberg trilogy, two, trilogy, Two Girls, One Cup in Space? Hey, that's a joke. Well, I mean, I was thinking, is that, what about One Guy, One Cup, which you might have seen. But... Two Girls, One Cup in Space. Come on, damn it. Uh, yeah, it's very good, Dad. But, um, no, Kids. Like, I wish I could think of, I probably can just think of a really gross, you know, stupid, uh, uh, shocking premise, and then have absolutely no plot, no artistry, because that movie is 
boring. Yes, a um, human centipede really is boring. And make all this money. Well, let's get to the real question, Amanda. Uh, what did you think of uh, Double Dragon? <laughs> Double Dragon is so great. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and, and speaking of Double Dragon, Adam? You're watching the Raiders Gladiators game on TV, and suddenly the house collapses. How embarrassing, but it's not your fault. It's everybody's fault. That's why you got to go to Jack City, where you can choose from hundreds of decorator colors. So remember, if you didn't buy from us, you don't know Jack City. Yeah. Now that is comedy. That is comedy right there. I wrote that scene on the plane. Genius. Uh, Alan, uh, uh, listen, I, I need to uh, say this in all seriousness. The guy who hired me for that, a really sweet guy, died tragically by his own hand. And this is the truth. I'm not making a joke. His name was Alan Schechter. I found this out kind of recently. I made this movie. Uh, he called us up. He was a guy from Cleveland who was later Joel Silver's assistant and went through uh, an upturn in his career and then a, a horrible downturn, uh, apparently troubled, although he seemed like a regular nice guy to me when we hung out. And I just want to say Oliver Shulam out there, shout out to the great beyond to Alan Schechter and anybody who ever knew him. Uh, I'm sorry, I heard about this most recently. I don't even know if Joe Lorario knows. And um, yeah, he was the guy that gave me my first and perhaps, perhaps, last job in real movies, if in, you indeed uh, consider something produced by Imperial Entertainment a real movie. But Alan was a nice guy to me, and I really liked him, and he took me out and put me in a, the Hollywood Roosevelt uh, Hotel where I saw some ghosts um, both real and, well, Freddie de Cordova, who was almost a ghost at that time. Um, so, uh, uh, fare thee well, Alan. A anything else, Amanda, today? about? No, I just wanted to complain about my hard drive being taken up with. Is Dave home? Is Dave home? Being... No, he's at work, of course. Well, shame on you, Dave. Okay. I yelled at him last night. Well, you can, you can uh, erase. I'm so humiliated. <laughs> well, no one would have known had you not come on Morning Feed, G-Town Radio, gtownradio.com. And you're not alone since I guess it made some $10 million in the theater. So, Wow. Considering a little well, I didn't pay money for it, so I feel somewhat justified. <laughs> All right, honey. Okay. All right. Okay. Bless you, dear. All right. See you later. Bye. Bye. Amanda Beth Watts Feldman on the phone. Um, yeah, she watches a lot of movies. She would, you know, your uh, experiences and tastes coincide. I know I'm being generationalist here. Where were we, Adam? I know you should go to Medium Rare Cinema tonight and every Thursday night. Of course, this isn't folding chair and uh, no, it's a Bell and Howell shit. Movie theater seats, very, very good air conditioning. Luxurious. 110 in screen, surround sound. Free popcorn. Free popcorn. Free screeners and trivia questions and all sorts of stuff. And it, most importantly, discussion about the big fix and other things. If you ever wondered how the people in movies get to see movies or live in their private screening rooms, uh, this would be as close as you're going to get without the cocaine. All right? Fine. Remember that. We call the free popcorn the cocaine equivalent. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I can pound that free popcorn. Now, so this is it. Ten bucks? Seven. Seven? Gee whiz. And Come the on short now. film that you get as well. And the short film, and Adam leads a discussion. You can talk about it, or you can just sit quiet and munch. I like to put the popcorn in my mouth and kind of let it melt. You and bring any food in that you like. 
Oh, yeah. you can bring in hoagies and whatever, yeah, co- drinks. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's other candy, movie-style yeah, candy. They sell um, ice cream there and, they, you know, drinks and stuff. There's plenty of stores around the neighborhood where you can just buy some food and bring it in. It's not like anybody doesn't do that all the time. Yeah, there's a pizza joint like two doors down. There's a Mexican place a few doors down. There's McMenamin's. There's food for all on the same block. And food. Okay, now uh, McMenamin's pays for none of this, but frankly, I would get the fish and chips and go watch this movie because that's some good fish and chips. But, of course, if you want to really take out the fine cuisine or... And this is tonight at 7, or go early and then make a movie. Uh, this... uh, if you go early, there'll be trailers playing. And and the movie ends what time? Uh, the movie's an hour and 45 minutes, approximately. So, so 20 you... of 9. Yeah, then you have the short film and the discussion. So we The short film comes after? Before it. Okay. Um, so what time is the program over? Generally around mm, 10. 10. All right, so 10 is a little too late to get out and go to Roller's Flying Fish Restaurant, but I wholeheartedly... Bring it in. You know, yeah, you can first. bring it in. You can bring in a covered plate. Paul will get you something to go. Or if you want to make a true night of it and don't want to sit in a seat and get the oil from a hoagie or mayonnaise, does, do you put mayonnaise on a hoagie? Then we have, uh, we have nothing to talk about. But if you want a f- the full effect of fine cuisine and fine film, go first to Roller's Flying Fish Restaurant at 8142 Germantown Avenue where Chef Paul Roller conveys to your table well, not personally. He cooks it. Somebody else brings it. The bounty of the land, sea, and air. The best food in Philadelphia, in my opinion, because I've been everywhere, and I know what I'm talking about. Roller's Flying Fish Restaurant for breakfast, uh, for lunch and dinner, for breakfast and lunch. One block up at Gravers, Roller's Expresso. Oh, the waffles for breakfast or lunch and for takeout. And here's the takeout part that you can take to Adam Lippy's Medium Rare Cinema over in just a few blocks away. We're talking... 8142 Germantown Avenue for Rollers Flying Fish Restaurant. 7141 Germantown Avenue for Medium Rare Cinema. Almost exactly 10 blocks apart. In, you, inside the video library, so you go in store in the video store to the back. It's a private screening room. Get Rollers food. Take it and go eat it while you watch the Richard Dreyfus non-star vehicle from 1978, The Big Fix. It's heaven on a plate and on a screen. I have I have erected for you the perfect Thursday night. Plus, it's Manny Patinkin's first film, and he has the best scene in the whole movie as, as, right. a, as a pool man who I don't even know what he's talking about, but it's fantastic. You know, I hate to get ethnic, and I hardly ever do, but man, this is a Jewy movie, man. <laughs> Manny Patinkin, Susan and Spock. Ron Rifkin as, as the new AG boyfriend of of bonnie bedelia who's a drives his ex-wife in the movie i don't know about bonnie bedelia maybe maybe i could i could wiki it you know i'm guessing like more jews write on wikipedia than any other ethnic group because because nobody's ethnicity is ever identified on wikipedia except jewish people nobody ever said raised lutheran never but if they have a Jewish mother and a non-Jewish father, that's mentioned. The reverse also. If they've got a cousin, it's mentioned. Oh man, Wikip- We should call it Wikipedia, shouldn't we? Susan Anspach. So Wikipedia is like uh, the equivalent of Native American casinos, is what you're getting at? Yeah, pretty much, except not as profitable. Who does anybody make money off of Wikipedia? I don't even know. And uh, how they, would they? I, I don't know. I mean, I know they, they attempted to get donations, but I don't even know how they do that. I mean, they would take up so much space on someone's server. I, I don't know either. But then I don't know how YouTube makes any money either. And I don't think it does. 
Really? Well, how are you going to make money off of YouTube? The ads just aren't going to, you know, that is so much space in terms of anybody can upload a video at any time. They got to have people who oversee all of the content to make sure it's not copywritten or whatever. Listen, somebody had to explain to me how Facebook made money because I never noticed the ads ever till somebody, and I'd been on it a million times because I write about the show every day. I never noticed the ads, which made me very proud of myself because well, I have we're all trained pretty much myself. not to notice ads at this point. Yeah, so fuck you, Zuckerberg. How about that shit? And you take your dog to restaurants. Stop that. It's not right. It's dirty. Okay, Susan Ansbach, cute. F. Murray Abraham, eh. <laughs> What's funny about the movie is that for about 20... I mean, he's a good actor, but he's not attractive. For, for, well, I guess the entire time before F. Murray Abraham actually shows up, Ron Rifkin's wearing a beard, and he looks so much like F. Murray Abraham, I thought, oh, maybe that's F. Murray Abraham. Jean and then Paul, I realized Jean when Paul. F. Murray Abraham showed up that he was not playing two parts, in fact, and Ron Rifkin behind a beard looks just like F. Murray Abraham. That's why it was so easy for them to tell us, go you to the left. Say, it's it's <laughs> because 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 until you know thirty years ago we just married each other. I don't know why. Why would we want to do that? How does Rotten Tomatoes work, Adam? You write for them. Well, in a sense that I write for my own site, Regrettable Moment of Sincerity at regrettablesincerity.com. And it's a really good website and uh, a really good article about uh, Ken Russell, which we'll go into a little bit. And I write for Examiner, and I write for some local newspapers uh, like the Germantown Chronicle. And basically what happens is once you get on Rotten Tomatoes, you just find your own blurbs and put them up based on whatever reviews, and you decide whether something is rotten or fresh, which is... Nonsense, because that's it's all about personal scale. So what exactly, you know, my version of fresh is not exactly your version of, mm -hmm. you know, a fresh film. Like, you know, on my site right now is a review of The Tree of Life, which opens in uh, Philadelphia tomorrow. The new Terrence Malick. The new film. Terrence Malick, movie, which I liked. But First one in this century. No, he made. Oh yeah, yes. No, no, he made the New World in two thousand five. Okay, so, I tried and watch to watch. Yeah, that. I, everyone tried. Yeah, and we all made it about forty five minutes. Yeah, a and. Uh, you know, I enjoyed The Tree of Life, but I'm totally aware that no one else will because it is so alienating right from the start and it is so nonspecific. And as I pointed in my review, it's, 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 a, it's a film without reaction shots. Yeah, you mentioned that. In it, your it's, it's very odd. It's so dictatorial and, and basically Malik telling us what he wants. It's not subtle, obviously. It's Terrence Malik. Is it like. Frankly, every other Malick movie yeah, I've it's seen, very much like Ma every which Malick is Netflix. a meditation on geography. I mean, that's it, how I see in a Malick sense, films. I mean, the same, you know, voiceover a, a narration of biblical quotes that have nothing to do with the story at hand. But you know what? As uh, as often as the doyens and the elder statesmen of movies talking about imagery, about imagery, about imagery, I'm talking about you, you about you, Marty, Marty Scorsese. These movies are absolutely loaded with voiceover literary content. Not that there's anything wrong with that. They well, never Malik started to do that, you know, originally with Badlands, but then he was forced to on Days of Heaven because he cut so much story out of the movie right. that it no longer made any sense. And so he had to add the child's voiceover in order for anybody to follow what was going on. Otherwise, it was just beautiful imagery for 95 minutes. I adore Badlands. I could watch Badlands today. I think. Badlands. That yeah, was that his holds, de yeah, debut that movie. Very well, yeah. That might be, you know, all right, I'm going to say it. Up with Kane. Up there with Kane. And Manhattan. 
No, well, no, as debut movie. Oh, okay. As, yes. as greatest debut movie. And Malick... And Heart 8, if you see that. I don't know it. That's Paul Thomas Anderson's. Oh, person. okay. Great film. All right. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, uh, Wells was coming from another medium. Uh, Malick came from where? Commercials, is that right? Did he make commercials? So he did come from another medium? I, I, I can't remember what it is. I mean, look, I know Chimino started with commercials, but they were big budget commercials. So the Don't ship, mention that name around the here. The shift to features was not a big deal for him. <laughs> that was a feature? <laughs> that was an endurance test. Well, Thunderbolt, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot's his first Good film. movie. All right, fine. The bunnies, the aircraft cannon. Yeah, I like that movie. Yeah, but... I gotta believe he was under Eastwood's control on that. One. Exactly, exactly. Eastwood would not let him do more than two or three takes and said, oh, "Let's go." Have we talked about Eastwood on this last time? Uh, a little, I think. See, in my East... walking of Gran Torino. Yeah, Eastwood. Eastwood's equation is, and uh, again, because Hollywood is all about equations now, it's not about art anymore. My problem with the world: too much math. Sorry. Well, it's huh. not about. It's not just not about art. It's not about entertainment either. See, Eastwood's equation is the easiest equation of any filmmaker and eastwood's equation is leone plus siegel equals eastwood and it's a great equation because they they are perhaps the two most diametrically opposed directors in the history of cinema leone takes hours on a fly and a face and Siegel coming out of the Warner Brothers montage factory is absolutely he's got he's got the fat content of a triathlete in his movies. So one, you've got perhaps the most expansive filmmaker ever to get an 18 to 49 demographic into a theater. Leone. Well, David Lean also, but yes. What? College boys went to go see eight Great Expectations? They went to see Lawrence of Arabia. Okay. Just for the gay scene. <laughs> but, <laughs> you mean the whole four-hour film? <laughs> All right. Okay. But, uh, I mean, seriously, you had, you had frat boys w- going to see a four-hour uh, movie by Leone. They don't sit still that long. But, and then you've got Siegel at the opposite end, just fast. And that's what... Eastwood is he's he's a combination of those two that's why he shoots like you know flags of our fathers and uh whatever the Iwo Jima film he did it, all in a very very short period of time all under budget all under budget all under budget I, I remember when he made million dollar baby that movie wasn't even announced until like July of that year that's a smart piece of shit Yes, <laughs> in a sense, but but in a sense that he works so fast that you know Piece he will put shit. out a, a, a totally. Couldn't watchable they have had kittens in the bed with her? Come on now, a totally watchable film in <laughs> not a to of me. weeks somehow. Not to me. Look, you can have a dying girl or you can have a kindly old black man, but you can't have both. You just can't. Not not for me, and not have me book out. I mean, just bring in the fucking kittens. Come on now. Well, they also threw in the racist white boy who learns his lesson. Yeah, how about that? The kid from Undeclared. So apparently, you know, uh, uh, nobody gets to tell Clint what to do anymore either. Uh, well, look, as long as they make money, they're not going to so. tell him I not to so. do something. I mean, he's got his forever contract at Warner. So. Yeah, see, now, I am I know I'm in the minority, and jump on me if I said this last time. I adore Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. You're just, in the minority. I find it pretty much cartoonish. And, just love in, it. In the wrong way. Like, he doesn't focus on either the scenery enough or the mystery. And really, you just throw out the mystery at that point. Okay. All right. I think we mentioned it last time, so not, let's not mention it again. So, 
Badlands, perhaps Sheen's best performance. Yes, probably. Um, certainly up there with in with Sissy Spacek. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the early Sissy Spacek things where you say, "God, what a brilliant performance for a sixteen-year-old," and then you realize she's thirty. Right. But and then it just diminishes it slightly because now it's not a brilliant performance of a sixteen-year-old. It's a oh my God, she's thirty and she's playing sixteen. That's brilliant too. Well, you know what? The Fannings have been doing that for a while, and in fact, uh, L Fanning is the best part of Super Eight, which opens t- today, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she she gives a sort of stunning ghost-like performance. And she's the only believable thing in the in the film, and that that her like SpaceX, you just believe that she's whatever age she's portraying, even if she was portraying a forty year old, you'd totally buy it. We'll get back to Mallet. Tell me about Super Eight. Super, I'm completely Super 8 is the new ignorant. It's a modern uh, film for young people. Is Robert Pattinson in it? Uh, no, he's not. Oh it's, well, then how J- could it really be for young people? J.J. Abrams wrote and directed it, so yeah, he's one of those guys who doesn't have a first name like. Well, the other problem, Louis yes, C.K. Yes, or what the fuck is it with these? Well, these no, are white people. They need to use their whole names. Louis C.K. is Mexican, actually. Really? Yes. The long version of his name is something, I guess, unpronounceable. So he just okay. wrote the shorter version. Uh, Couldn't he just change it to Lopez like George did from... Or... or George Lopez is really Jewish, you know. Well, and... Don Fernando is. Ca- Carlos Mencia, really German, but you know, that's not his real name. Well, you know, the Germans and Via and those guys and the Wild Bunch. His name know. is Ned in real life. For real? Yes. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> he's one of these comedians nowadays that I don't laugh at. Well, nobody really laughs at him. He's, he's just kind of a sad case of plagiarism. But anyway, Super 8 is Abrams' attempt at doing E.T. So it's a, a film. I'm trying not to ruin any of it because it, you know, it does hold this suspense for quite a while and wondering what exactly... Uh, these kids shot with their camera that during a train crash and what what's going on with the military and it's one of those like you know government is evil sort of I mean it it, it gets off easy and and the side plot with the kids so it's like the kids and the tent and the in the in the woods that movie and the, that movie about the monster Chesterfield Blair Witch Project you're talking about? it's yeah. closer to it's actually closer to last year's monsters than anything else okay uh, um, but I'm just I'm just Throwing out he, every he, young movie he does, about well, monsters that I've seen. Well, he does it. He produced Cloverfield, and it's very similar, okay. except it does not. It does not have the immediacy of Cloverfield. It runs a, a good forty minutes longer. And what's interesting about Super Eight is that mm. if you took the kids out of the movie, and they're really just playing the Goonies writ large, if you took the kids out of the movie, it would make no difference in the story. It's funny. Would as I watched the film, I realized, you know, they have no effect on the outcome whatsoever, which is an interesting way of doing it. Not probably how Spielberg wish they had done it or maybe he didn't even notice but he's the producer then? he's the producer of the film if you took him if you took the kids who are the main focus of the film out of the film the film would be exactly the same minus the kids so and you it would, would be less pandering to kids now that you'd miss the l fanning performance but the rest of it just sort of generic cliched kids is this a thumbs up or a thumbs down adam it is a, a thumbs medium would you recommend uh, someone of my age group to see it? Because let me tell you, when I watched Cloverfield, at the end, I said two things. I said, "Well, the monster is is not is also not good, like in Cloverfield." But I yeah. thought Cloverfield sustained the suspense of, like, what are we looking at? Where are we? Kind of thing. And and Super doesn't really do that. Well, I, I I had three thoughts during and after Cloverfield. The main one was so. Um, the the other one was, you know what? I don't want to be at parties with these people. No, no, no. You, you, and I seem not, to be at a party with these not people. Not liking them is 
irrelevant. It's like okay. complaining that the Blair Witch Project, oh, I don't like these people. That's not the point. Okay. And it, the, uh, the other thought I had about Cloverfield is this would be better if they were Korean. <laughs> because the movie about the monster that came out of the river. Godzilla? No, Korea. The host? Yes. That was like That's Clo- a great film, Cloverfield yeah. with a couple of more million dollars. Uh, available or maybe just cheaper labor. Cheaper so they labor. That's a yeah, lot, actually lot got to see the goddamn thing, and I enjoyed it much but better. That's, that's Even not, though the little girl died, I really hated that part. But, but the, the the point of Cloverfield is not to see the monster; it is the idea of the monster, and the same thing is true of Super Eight. And it's same like you know, fake yeah. But camera you see, nonsense. the thing is, not seeing the monster like in Jaws or the first eighty percent of Close Encounters or Alien, and for about an hour, right. When you knew they had enough money to show the monster is different from not seeing the monster because you think it's because they don't have enough money to show the monster. Y- yes. But See, now, I can't now, help. I hate myself no, for, now, for being forced to think about the the economics of a movie while I'm watching the goddamn movie. But even that, in a sense, tells me that. Because this movie has not taken me away from this nagging economics equation concept means it is failing on some level. You know what I mean? I, I get what you're saying. The thing with the, the monster movies is that, yes, that's always on your mind. But now that CGI has gotten good enough where it can fool most people, depending on how good it is, obviously, because uh, some is very distracting. See, but I like, like styrofoam spaceships better than no, CGI spaceships. No, I do spaceships. too, but the new X-Men movie has very good CGI if it doesn't have anything else. If it can be convincing, then it that it's okay, but it's the same notion, like once you see the monster, it takes anything away. So you don't see the monster in Super 8 probably until the last 20 minutes. And, in fact, the story of the monster is not that interesting, and they don't tie everything together in any unique way. The ending is actually fairly disappointing. And Cloverfield can be described the same way. As once you see the monster... The see, air, I don't even remember the ending. The air gets sucked out of the movie. And because it's not very good, and because you're stuck with something that you know isn't real, you know, you're not really believing it. And, and the, the, the Gareth Edwards film from last year, Monsters, was a low-budget film with, with very convincing CGI monsters in it. It didn't affect... you know. Yes, it became a human story, because obviously they couldn't afford to show the monsters all the time. But that didn't matter because then the monsters are just, you show them once and you get them on the periphery and you kind of believe they're there. It's the notion of there's a, go ahead. All right. Uh, Morning Feast, film uh, maven Adam Lippy, you're on the air. Hi, it's Amanda again. Okay, okay, fine. I (laughs) want to say this is exactly why I can't stand J.J. Abrams is because he will write exactly one interesting thing one single interesting plot point and then make you wait an entire movie to see this interesting plot point. And then all the critics chalk it up to, oh, what great suspense. No, it isn't. It's lazy writing. This is why I couldn't, I could not watch Lost anymore. It was like there was like one interesting premise and then nothing worked beyond that premise. By the way, I never watched Lost. So in the last segment, the naked gay guy, did he win the prize? Oh, no, that's another, that was another TV show about an island. I get him confused. Adam, what do you think about this comment? Well, I can see see the point. Now, I happen not to enjoy any of the J.J. Abrams films for a number of different reasons. I'm one of the 5% of critics who gave Star Trek a bad review, but mostly because I thought it was like watching a Muppet Babies version of Star Trek. I, hate, I hated Star Trek. Oh, it was like Star Trek for idiots. It was not 
Star Trek. Yeah, I don't it enjoy it when they have to when they have the obligation to fulfill like whatever lines that are famous, and then they have the origin of them, and it's always so cheesy. The new X Men falls for that a lot, and it's very irritating. One of the main problems with J.J. Abrams, he shoots on these enormous budgets, like Mission Impossible Three, also made, and that's with that short guy, right? Yes, this is with okay. the short guy, mm-hmm. and it looks like TV. There and is, the Star Trek you were discussing, that's the one with the bald guy, not the one with the no, bald the re- guy with the wig. No, no, it was, no it's neither. It's the Star remake Trek two years 2010. ago. Oh, see, I stopped watching after Ricardo Montalban died, honestly. Uh, <laughs> he shoots... So when you old. When you want Super 8, you can tell that his, his idea of something is very much within the TV frame, the 178 now frame, even though he's shooting scope every time. And so there's sort of an empty left and right side to it, and you can tell that's just sort of representational of his limited imagination of dealing with things. He only has the TV way of thinking, which is okay, but he's got the network TV way of thinking, which is safe, and then maybe I'll push it, but I'll back off, and maybe I'll... Maybe I'll start to do something. There's a pot smoker in Super 8 who, of course, cannot be condoned. Um, Does he die? I'm not going to give that away. I ain't going to say it. Uh, no, you don't. I mean, All right, when it comes it, on IFC, if I still can afford cable. Well, I don't think it'll be on IFC. But uh, no? It, well, no. Because well, it's a real movie, you mean? N- well, they, <laughs> IFC does show Weinstein films that may be made for $60 million, which often makes no sense. But Yeah, I don't get that. But Paramount, who distributed Super 8 has to deal with Showtime, so it'll show up on Showtime. Oh, I see. I don't get the Showtime, so I won't see it. But you'll see it when it comes... Yeah, I don't know how well it'll play at home, honestly. Okay. Uh, But yeah, I can... Is it made on Super 8, or am I... No, that's... Am I just being really dated about that? No, (laughs) it takes place in the 70s, and the accident is captured on Super 8 film. So it's like blowout or blow up. In a sense, but actually seeing the film doesn't occur until way, way later in the film. Mm -hmm. And it started to bother me when I was watching the movie because when I made films in college on 16mm, you had to hold down the button Mm -hmm. to keep the film rolling. Right. And the Uh kids have to run away from the explosion, so the camera's still rolling even though there's nobody holding the button. I'll see. And I didn't, I was distracted (laughs) by that because I don't remember. This is what infuriates me about J.J. Abrams. It's like even, you know, Good, even somewhat decent film critics, you know, call him a genius and stuff, and he's not. He's a genius for idiots. I don't know if he's... That's a sliding scale, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> In terms of what he's making, he's okay at it. I just wish that he would just stay... He's a better producer than, than a director. He's not really much of a, a filmmaker in terms of big thought, because as you pointed out, he's got one idea, and then he hides behind it, and then... You can't do that with a. You can do that with a TV episode because it's shorter. There are commercial breaks. You can tease and you can tease and you can tease. But if you do that with a movie and you just have the one idea and you didn't just start at the one idea and expand from there and then use that as the starting point, then you it does kind of feel very slow and very long. And very but it doesn't even work for TV because Lost. Obviously, I started watching Lost and I was like, oh, here's an interesting premise. Um, people, you know, crash on an island, and it's a crazy island of mysteries. Okay, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> but then um, it was obviously not thought out anything beyond that. Like, that was obviously the pitch. It was like, crazy island of mysteries. And then it's like, okay, well, what else? Um, I don't know. Well, the, dead. the problem with pitching network TV is that you assume it's going to get canceled very quickly. Right. And uh, look. So they it, only have one season arcs. The, right. The one season, they shoot. Look, it, it happens in every single artistic form. Look at the look at look at records. Um, people grow up. 
They may have talent. They may have a lot. They may have a little. They write songs. They start writing them when they're God knows how old. And then they play in coffee houses. And then they get a, a record deal. And they've written 300 songs. And the record company says, give us your 12 best. They give them their 12 best. And it's a great album. And then they say, the day after the album go platinum, all right, now give us another 12. They haven't written 12 other great songs. They got the 12 great songs for the first album. They didn't have time to write any songs after their first album because they've been busy touring and getting free Verve Clicquot and doing cocaine. So what do they do? They give them their second best 12 songs. So the second album isn't as good as the first. And then they do more coke and more free champagne and, and bang more playmates or more Dallas Cowboys if it was a woman. And, and then they say, all right, now we need another album. Right now, when the first album literally took them their entire pre-fame life to come up with that shit. And that's why this, as my dead mother used to say before she was dead. And so this is it. This is, you hit, look, I, I, every time a break... They don't call it breakout for nothing. Very often, this is not just a breakout role, a breakout hit. It is the hit. That's why one hit wonder is a phrase that everybody knows because these people were only good enough to have one really excellent issue out of their heads, right? Well, yeah, there's the, the my theory has always been how, how to have a greatest hits album. You only need to have one and a half hits to have a greatest hits album. I based this on seeing a Percy Sledge greatest hits album, and I couldn't remember any other song he ever did other than When a Man Loves a Woman. That's right. And so I figured, well, it, the way it works, and it did, I guess it works less this way now, but it did for a long period of time, is you have your big hit, and it sells you know, five million copies just based on that one single, and then you release a second single that people only buy because of that first single, and it does okay. And then there's a third single that nobody particularly buys. And then the record company wants more and more albums. And then, you know, there's always a little bit of sales based on that very first single. And also the second single a lot of times sounds exactly like the exactly. first thing. Quicksand was the uh, song after Heat Wave, by the way. It's the same song with different words. And then the third <laughs> album, less people buy. And mm -hmm. then maybe there's a live album or a remix album. And then maybe there's an EP as the fourth album, and then the group breaks up, and then they release the greatest hits album anyway. And that's why they All invented based on one and a half hits. Well, see, that's why they invented the word sequel because when the second movie is the same as the first, except a little different, nobody says, "Oh, this is just like the first one." Well, I meant to do that in the words of Pee Wee Herman, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> well, so um, one more question. Um, speaking of overrated, are you eating? By the way. I'm taking my vitamins. Okay, that's um, good. Speaking of overrated pieces of shit, um, what did you think of Inception? I have to admit that I really enjoyed it, and I think that the fact that it's attempting something is more important that it's so convoluted. I'm aware that every single bit of dialogue is just them having to explain the plot over and over and over, and it's just narration, and mm -hmm. it's all exposition for two and a half hours. But it's beautiful to look at. The score is great. Uh, I was with the story. I loved the way that they balanced all four worlds at the same time. That's very difficult to do. I'd only ever seen it done one other time, which was in Time Code, and that was a lot less complicated of a movie. I love Time Code, man. Just as an experiment, right? Not yeah. And the fact that you saw a lot of Selma Hayek and she made out. <laughs> yes, there, there's that too. So I, I, I can appreciate people's objection to Inception, but I like that they didn't answer the ending. I like that it doesn't really matter whether you're in a dream or not, in a sense. 
and there can be different set pieces on different levels, and they're all working at the same time. Even though um, counterpoint, people, Amanda. Did you see the movie Paprika? Uh, oh, the cartoon. Yeah, love that movie. Yeah. No, I haven't. Great Miyazaki, very, right? Very similar premise, mm -hmm. done much, much better. Came out of quite a few years before Inception. Hey, this, um, it's a movie I've seen that Adam has not seen. I think this is a first. I'm not a big into anime. That's the problem. Okay. It all looks, um, it, it all looks like it, Voltron to me. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, I, I recommend it, and for, especially for people who either liked Inception or had a problem with Inception. <laughs> See, I have a problem. it's a very good counterpoint to it. I haven't seen Inception, but I have a problem, Amanda. Can you name it? Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. That would be the problem. I thought you were going to say hemorrhoids. but No, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't see Inception, but it's going to take me a while to get around to seeing it because of that person, which, by the way, I forgot to mention when we were discussing Malick, which is uh, I love Badlands, but then Days of Heaven had, of course, a fatal flaw, and that and fatal flaw Richard is named Gere. Richard yeah. Gere. Yes, that's right. Yeah, but he, the only, black, had like the black he only had like two lines in the whole movie. Yeah, but he's in so many scenes. Richard Gere, it, I, Richard Gere is so profoundly not there. So profoundly a black hole that I can't even analyze his his talent. Which, if I if I had a gun to my head, I would have to say nil, none. Well, he he's the the problem with the Cotton Club. Now there are a lot of problems with the Cotton Club, but it was flawed from the very start because Richard Gere insisted on playing a white. I can't remember what he's playing a clarinet or a, no no yeah yeah whatever he's a trumpet player and. There weren't any of those in the various clubs, so they had to make it about competing clubs, and then the movie just totally falls apart. So he is right at the center of why that movie dies right. immediately. But there are good... I mean, the Cotton Club, because it's a musical, you can kind of factor out uh, and just enjoy uh, Heinz, so Heinz, the to, Heinz to, Brothers. To yeah, them in. I, right. I, I can't even analyze Richard Gere's talent, which as far as I can see is non-existent. It, his, what about his, Eternal Affairs? He's very good in that. I didn't see it. His effect on a movie is so profound, it is as if the laws of physics were suspended and somehow in a two-dimensional plane, which is what films are mostly, I mean, pre-Cameron and pre-House of Wax, maybe, he is a black hole. He is a black hole through which there is such, such a profound lack of energy, lack of anything, where... Even the talent and the life and the artistry around him is sucked into the vortex that is the empty spot that Richard Gere occupies on the screen. It, it, I liked uh, Days of Heaven, and I'll tell you why. It's very pretty, <laughs> but also that little kid is awesome. The kid is I great. I love her. <laughs> and even Brooke Adams, which I'm no fan of, uh, well poses nicely and again but you know in my review of, of uh, tree of life i pointed out that malik is the greatest storyboard artist of all time but not necessarily a filmmaker well he i think he i would agree with that he does as i said meditations on geography and of course he is one of the masters in my opinion of the widescreen vis-a-vis scenery well, he didn't actually shoot widescreen until Thin Red Line. Right. Thin Red Line is great. The only other people who use topography, I feel that I, that I really know their work. Michael Mann does it. Not anymore, since he started the shooting in grainy uh, yeah. HD. It looks terrible. And Nick Ray, Nicholas Ray, did it. Wind Across the Everglades. And even, you know, even uh, Rebel Without a Cause. I mean, that was a man, probably really, and you can talk about all the widescreen biblical crap of the 50s 
Nicholas, those were all gimmicks. That was just Nic- like, we got to get away from TV. Right. Nicholas Ray used why he was the first master of widescreen. I think without question. Everybody talks, you know, he's always linked with, with Dean and the Rebels. Well, and- give credit to John Carpenter as well, who was always great at doing that. Now, I mean, not, not necessarily anymore, because he hasn't made a movie in a while. If he did make The Ward, but negligible movie. Yeah. Oh, okay, I mean, fine. you watch something like Assault on Precinct 13, beautiful widescreen photography, Halloween, The Thing, Big Trouble in Little China, which is a piece of wonderful junk, but right. still great use. I just watched that the other night. <laughs> That's the Ken Russell, right? I mean, uh, uh, Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell. That movie's great for a number Only of reasons, but mostly because Kurt Russell's so brave that he's willing to look short in the movie. And the, the, it's he exemplified by a scene <laughs> that's high angle, which you don't really don't see short actors allow for. Yeah. The camera's way up high, and you can see him walking in his cowboy boots, and he looks about four foot seven. Yeah, short and with a mullet. Yep. That is, that is brave acting right there. I'm liking Kurt Russell. You know, I still adore... Uh, Computer wore tennis shoes? No. Um, yeah. <laughs> the happiest millionaire. No. The one with the monkey. What was the one with the TV monkey? Whatever, whatever it was called. I don't know. No, the one, uh, the carpenter, the New York. Uh, no, Escape from New Escape York. from New York. It's great. Even though it, it is the movie, aside from the Fountainhead, which is cheating because it's based <laughs> on the book, that if they could have said, let's talk about future history and, and history and get it exactly wrong. I've spoken about the Fountainhead. Ayn Rand ascribes uh, communism to neoclassical architecture. And no, communist created modernist architecture. She got it exactly wrong, but she was a dope anyway. Everybody knows that. Anybody who knows that who is an Ed Snyder. Uh, and of course, Escape from New York is about in the future, New York will become a prison and all the people, all the like the, the rich people will be locked out. And of course, it's become exactly the opposite. Well, Unless the, you're a rich pe- person, is, you can't live in Manhattan Escape now. from New York is more of a joke than, than like on purpose. That's an intentional No, but see, that's a, that's a movie about the New York in the 70s yes. when they felt that's the way it might just go. Or Detroit in the 70s where it's the punchline for a lot of 70s movies. Like well, Kentucky Detroit movie. they got right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but New York now, of course, uh, rather than being an impri- uh, in prisons there, you can't live in New York and make, unless you make seven figures. I mean, it's completely everybody else other than, I mean, look. Uh, but people who work in New York don't usually live there, if that's mostly what you're getting at. Right, but I mean, New York, uh, the, the prices have skyrocketed. They're not going to turn it into, well, in a sense, it's a prison, but it's a prison for rich people. Uh, go to Medium Rare Cinema tonight, Thursday at 7, at the Video Library, 7141 Germantown Avenue. Amanda, what do you think about Richard Dreyfus in the 70s? I think Richard Dreyfuss is adorable, but I'm weird. Well, no, no, that's okay. He's the cutest <laughs> little guy. Did you see that uh, tin, the Tin Man movie, the, the TV the, movie, where he it, played the wizard? Not, not Tin Men that okay. we was in, which is a good movie. Yes. Which is a Barry Levinson Baltimore movie. And, of course, Barry Levinson said, I'm going to put Richard Dreyfuss in a movie. I need somebody shorter. Who would that be? <laughs> Billy Barty, retired. Tom Cruise, <laughs> Nobody knows who he is. I know Danny DeVito. And I want to I make sure that, that these are the two most charming people on screen. We'll make it about aluminum siding. I, it's a really, really good movie. I like, uh, you know, Barry Levinson should only make movies about Baltimore, in my opinion. Sure. I think. Whenever he gets out, it, it ain't... Well, you know, Bugsy wasn't bad. Bugsy was not bad. But w- what just happened is a mess, and it's kind of unfortunate how when he does venture out of Baltimore, I see yeah. what you mean. Yeah, but Bugsy, you know, as as a period piece, 
I think, quite good. Yeah. And, of course, really uh, weird because, you know, here's Beatty in a movie. The only good Toback script, one could argue. Mm, perhaps, uh, but Beatty in a, in a movie where he lets somebody else do something? You know, obviously, well, he's kind of a passive screen presence for someone who's so revered. It's always very strange. Yeah, but I mean, Beatty gets to do what the hell he wants, uh, and and to put himself. Whenever I see Beatty in in a non-Beatty vehicle, or, of which there know, aren't many anyway, he's only been in about twenty movies. Right, but I mean, nowadays he doesn't have to work. You know, the wife brings home money. Last movie was <laughs> Town and Country, which was made Ooh. ninety-eight and released in two thousand one. Eleven hundred dollar gross, was, something like that, yeah, on a hundred million dollar there you investment. Go. Yeah, that was was that Mike Nichols? No. That is Peter Chelsom. Oh, I have no idea. Uh, but yes, he is an Ishtar, which is much better than people think. It's better than Town and Country, actually. Right. Look, is Mike Nichols the guy you are always expecting something from, and he never no, delivers? No, he's just you know like Sidney Pollock, producer polish. I mean, that's really what it was. Yeah, but Mike Nichols. I mean, here was here was a guy who efficient uh, and nothing much else. Yeah, you're you always know, sort expecting of intellectuality, issue, but, and yeah, it's always it's middle really of the road. Yeah. yeah, and then it's just heartburn. It, it's it's perfect that he's married to a woman who went to the Sorbonne and asked the kinds of questions on television that she asks, which is pretty much... Uh, what kind uh, of tree do you like? Yeah, right. <laughs> even, even Peter Falk managed... Uh, where did you buy those shoes? Amanda, any final yes. thoughts? Oh, I just watched uh, Serial Mom the other night. I love that movie. That's I, it. Does I that do hold too. up at all? Because I saw it a long time ago, but I can't imagine... That, that period of John Waters where he is attempting to go back to when he was considered offensive and then he then he's just kind of in the isn't he cute offensive period. And I think that's now, a I've, lovely period. I've watched, uh, I've watched Serial Mom several times and I laugh every time. Um, it absolutely holds up. It is a, it is a really well-made movie. Because Pecker, made a few years later, is a total mess and trying so hard to offend and it just fails over and over and over. Don't get her mad now. <laughs> I won't defend all of John Waters' work. He is my favorite, but I won't defend him. But I will say, I'm a I'm a DVD commentary nerd, and oh, he, he has uh, the no, best. Mommy Dearest is the is one of the best commentaries you'll ever hear. He does the, he does the one on Mommy Dearest. Oh yes, oh it's excellent. Yes, John Waters' move, uh, DVD commentaries are the best, the absolute best. They are. And it's there, a laugh riot from beginning to end. He's just got a million stories. You have seen my Our Filthy World, or which was it? The, oh, um, This Filthy World. Yeah, Love it. See, that middle period, Hairspray, Cry Baby, Serial Mom, I think it's a great period. It's a, it, uh, those are three good movies. I agree. I tried to Adam watch, does not. I tried to watch Cry Baby recently, and I didn't make it very far. But you know, I can't Susan Terrell, Iggy Pop, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, because it's the same joke, and it's there's no variation on anything, and it that just it wears me out. The music's not good enough, and you know, you get into that kind of like, all right, this is cheese, but it has to be a little more entertaining cheese. It just doesn't get by on being a bad film that it knows it's a bad film. That's not enough. Cry Baby is one of my least favorites, and especially that being the follow-up to Hairspray is really disappointing. But it does; it has its moments. But Panders, that's m- m- I love the first Hairspray, and if we could CGI that Scientologist out of this last one, I would almost enjoy this. Of course, I cry at the recent Hairspray because that girl, what's her name? Nikki, Nikki Blonsky. She is so wonderful. Seriously, as as a person who knows the prejudices of America quite well and comments on them all the time, I see the 
and, and and as the prejudices I'm talking about fat prejudice, I'm talking about the prejudice against a Broadway style singing, and I see her literally light up the screen in my in that first scene. Uh, more talent than anyone has a right to possess. And I not only am brought to tears, literally, by the amount of talent that she exhibits, but also at the inherent tragedy that I know she will have in order for her to maintain a, a star power commensurate with her talent. She must change. And that is the American show business tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. What, a, what other movie is she possibly going to be in where she gets like to play a fat girl who sings and dances? It's just never going to happen. I know, I know, I know. Uh, that is the American uh, show business tragedy. That in order for this fat, talented girl to get another role, she will have to change, and she's perfect now. Yeah, that, that movie is worth it. It's only just for her. I just think John Travolta should go on that fucking Sea Org and just wear a little sailor suit, but stay far away from us. And that's that. Adam Lippy, I would love to talk more, but I got to get my car home to someone who wants to go to the gym. And it's not my car. <laughs> so that's why. Let me, let me quickly just... Plug your ass off. Amanda, okay. listen respectfully. This isn't a plug, but it's because oh. I saw the Tribe Called Quest documentary uh, last week, and it's fantastic. It That's a rap up. group, right? Yes. It's okay. a documentary about them made by the actor Michael Rapport, and it's, it's fantastic. The it big, com- dumb Jewish guy from the Woody Allen movies. Exactly. And it was, comes out, I guess, in mid-July, but it's totally worth seeing when it comes out, as is Submarine, which I believe comes out either this week or next week by Richard Iode who also did uh, Dark Place. A lot of very funny British stuff. This is more of a coming-of-age Rushmore-type film, but very good. I loved Rushmore. Well, I'll do, I'll do the last plug, if you want. Plug, plug to your heart's content. Uh, tonight Adam. at uh, 7141 Germantown Avenue in the video library, we're showing The Big Fix, and whatever short feels appropriate, whether it be the Ken Russell thing or Trunk, to open the film, free popcorn, bring in any food you like, and you will probably enjoy The Big Fix as much as Ed does. I really like... Do you ever see that one, Amanda? Nope. It's really good. Uh, Adam lent me the DVD, so maybe you can come over or I can come down there and can watch it. That would be cool. Okay, First cool. time seen in widescreen since 1978. And oh, wow. because it is... The problem with it never coming out on DVD is the Leon Redbone song called Seduce that I guess they, Universal couldn't clear the rights for the DVD, so they just didn't bother at all. And it's a shame because it's a very, they've replaced it on the video version, but there is no DVD because they just, they didn't want to clear the rights once again. And I guess here is Seduce, which is a fantastic song and a great turning point in the film. I want to be seduced. I want a woman to take me out to dinner for two. Yeah, man worked with a tuba. <laughs> Leon Redbone with a tuba. That's when he was his tw- in his 20s trying to look 60, and now he's 60. I wonder what he tries to look like now. That's, uh, he's getting into bed with Susan Anspach, right? He's trying to. It's, it's a transition scene that turns the movie to a little more serious. So because of that, uh, the copyright on that record, they c- can't show it 
Well, they can, yeah. but they have to change the song, and it ruins the scene, and so they just haven't bothered trying to clear it. Okay. So there's a VHS that you could find that's some 30 years old, but it has a different song, and the movie almost doesn't work entirely because of that, because they, it, it just feels like a totally different movie, mm-hmm. and there's no transition, and you're just kind of like, what am I watching here? And then it just gets, you know... Theoretically but more this is the original. This is the pure. This is the red bone. Yes. This is the Dreyfus and Spock Bedelia. Lithgow, young. Was a man ever young? Had, had hair. Had, but still quite tall. Yes. F. Murray Abraham. F. Murray Abraham. And Abram, a really funny whatever. Manny Patinkin scene. And Lupe Andavera says a maid, although she's only got one line. She mm. was from As Good As It Gets. And yeah, I remember. And, and the wonderful Chuck and Buck, if anyone gets to see that. <laughs> Speaking of uh, Richard... Dreyfus and Latino women, the Bondu Save from Drowning sequel, um, Voodoo, uh, uh, Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Okay, yeah. Elizabeth Pena had a big thing for her. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about the old man who read love stories, which he made no, a no. movie that couldn't get distribution here. No, uh, Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Great movie. Yes. Is that Levin? Who is that? That's. Um, oh, Mazursky. Mazursky. Yeah. Love Mazursky. Now, realize that Down and Out in Beverly Hills doesn't hold up at all, but I understand. Oh, it. no, I really enjoy it still. And really? Elizabeth Payne, you got a big thing for her. Okay. Well, I mean, if you can, if you're going to just go with the sexual stuff, the, the, the satire is plays very limp, just like a lot of like Brett Easton Ellis t- style see, stuff. Plays see, I, I, I know you should pardon this. Who are you, Bruce? I know L.A. quite well, and there are certain movies. I mean, throughout the morass, the miasma of movie after movie, filmed in LA and the Pacific Coast Highway and stop it already. That's why I like, you know, a Ronin. I mean, get me the hell out of California for some of my settings. There are then some movies that so successfully show that California uh, haze that miasma and Down and Out in Beverly Hills really does it well. The Long Goodbye by yes, Altman really does, yeah. is perfect. Is the perfect LA movie, and that's a movie from what, another seventy three that is so not dated. It is not now, part great. of it is that it's it's attempting to be noirish. He's driving a nineteen forty Lincoln anyway. He's trying to be Marlowe. He is Marlowe. So that time shift, you know, makes it timeless. It's the perfect better use of a Coke bottle than even in the Gods Must Be Crazy. I remember reading of a review, I think, in uh, Film Comment, which is a Canadian magazine, saying that's the only unbelievable part of the movie because Coke bottles cannot be broken against people's faces. No, it's impo- They can barely be broken with a hammer. <laughs> yes, but it's a, it's a shocking scene, and it totally works within the movie. And another great film. And the fact that it was Mark Rydell, who's the goddamn director, right. who, has a real, who had a real uh, kind of Phil Spector dictator rap anyway. When you see crusty directors like that like when John Huston appeared in a movie it, would, yeah. it worked just as well yeah right play and yourself a you, prick perfect you should see also California Split which is a wonderful one of the great I've seen every Altman film before during and after his wilderness years you know what ended them would you say health which I do enjoy but no uh, um, player uh, absolutely the player is there, is, well you're, you're still endorsing some of the 80s stuff like OC and Stiggs and <laughs> that's a nice car right <laughs> and Studebaker I mean, there's. Some, oh, yeah, there's, really? Uh, uh, what's the one where you. Oh, did? no, no, no. Uh, uh, lock somebody up and say, uh, watch, make them watch OC and Stiggs and say, here's a list of a thousand directors. Which one directed this? Altman will be the last one they choose. And then what's the one he did? The therapy one. Therapy, right. What, uh, what's uh, it called? Um, it's based on a play. Uh, and Jeff Goldblum, Christopher Guest, it's, yeah, yeah. it's absolutely, he's absolutely the wrong director to make the movie. He did a full, he did a Sam Shepard one. He doesn't work with that one. Yeah, he did select. some streamers was fine. Mm-hmm. But he's secret honors during that period and that really works. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but well, look after you look after Nashville, they said whatever you want, mm-hmm. right? So then, what the hell does he do? Buffalo Bill and the Indians. Right. I mean, it was made in a tomb. And then the women, he went, you know, he went crazy. And then, he um, went Bergman. Forget it. The one with uh, N- three N- women. Newman and the Ice uh, Quintet. Yeah, quint- ridiculous. I mean, and then you know, three, three complete disasters in a row. And then they pulled the money back. And then he had to get a finance himself. Well, right. no, he did get Popeye financed. Yeah, a magnificent failure or a failure of magnificence, something. Something. It has good moments, but it's mostly a waste. Well, mostly went up Robert Evans's nose. As much as uh, Robin Williams is literally shoehorned into that outfit, has there ever been Shelley Duvall is perfect in that? Any actress in the history of cinema made to portray. A character from another medium more than Shelley Duvall in Olive Oil. No, I mean, that none. Is, that, that is absolutely the best casting. That uh, The only thing close is a Laurel and Hardy as Laurel and Hardy. I mean, <laughs> hey, we'll get these guys to play. Well, these guys. Um, this Adam Lippy, uh, we have a lot more to talk about, and that's why you're back here once a month, right? Sure. Okay. Go to uh, any more plugs? Come tonight. And if you, if you show up and you mention the show... Uh, you will get a $5 ticket. Wow! What could be better? Go to Video Library tonight. What could be better is the free DVD screener you will probably end up with. Hey! Worth more than your ticket by quite a bit. Go see movies the way rich people see them. Privately, air-conditioned, and you know, rich... I have been told by the people who visit the private screening rooms of Beatty and Spielberg and Brando before he died... They have free popcorn, too. So that's it. Of course, in Brando, you couldn't get near it. One day I'll do my rap song that I wrote about Brando. Based on Baby Got Back, I called it I've Got a Big Belt. Timely. (laughs) Thanks, Adam. Ow! Uh, Tomorrow, in studio, Jim Dragoni. Lots of music. Maybe I'll sing G-Town Radio at gtownradio.com. We are the sound from Germantown, Monday through Friday, 9 to 10 a.m., Morning feed, and we now return you to your regularly scheduled. I got the wheel lane.